Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am incredibly pleased to welcome back very special guest, Peter Fascinelli. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, man, thank you for having me. It's been too long. It's been a, feels like a blink of an eye, but it's been like a year since I've been on. Or has it been a year or two? Maybe longer. It's Maybe it might have been like a year and a half. It I was. It was uh, September of last year, so just about a year. So uh, lots changed since then. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that. But it, we're in this like COVID kind of uh, fog where one day feels like a whole year, and one year feels like a whole day. It's just weird. They're like time just doesn't exist in this right now. But one day at a time, I guess. Absolutely. I was out in Los Angeles in February for a few days, and that feels like it was two years ago. So Crazy. So, the reason I, I had to have you on the show, I had to talk about your new movie, which came out this weekend called The Vanished. I was mentioning before we started recording that I watched this today with my girlfriend, and we were just blown away by this film. And we are going to keep it spoiler-free, of course, and unless perhaps towards the end of the episode, we'll give a major spoiler warning and Maybe you and I can discuss a little bit about the ending. I'm going to be encouraging everybody listening to this to watch this film. Maybe even pause this podcast, watch the film, come back and and listen to Peter and I discuss it. So, Peter, let's get to the genesis of this. Tell me about how this all came together. Tell me about The Vanished. Well, The Vanished is a movie I wrote and directed. uh, And it's about two parents played by Thomas Jane and Anne Heche. And they go to this RV park, this little mom and pop RV park in the middle of the woods on a vacation with their 10-year-old daughter. And within the first 10 minutes of the movie, she just vanishes. She goes missing. And so it's every parent's worst nightmare. And uh, and then it starts to become, you know, a whodunit. Like, who took the kid? And, you know, there's only a handful of suspects because there's because there's the, the RV park is, is kind of small, you know. Um, so the, the origins of this movie really came from an RV trip that I took uh, with my daughter and, and, and her mom when she was around, uh, when my daughter was around five years old, I, I had an RV and we went on this RV uh, trip from New York to Los Angeles, 30 days in a motorhome. Uh, it was beautiful, really beautiful. I mean, just going across country, it's, it's really interesting to watch architecture change and people change their, their, their demeanor, their accents. And so many times you jump on a plane and go overseas or you go to some tropical island or go skiing and there's all this uh beauty right here in our backyard uh so anyway we took this trip and i remember pulling into this rv park and and i went to pay and i heard some gunshots and i looked up and the guy said oh don't worry about that there's a prison down the road about two miles down the road if you hear gunshots one or two usually that's okay there's there's, they do a lot of drills and tests if you hear more than that, though, come running to the front desk. <laughs> so I didn't sleep at all that night. I just thought, well, geez, all these questions started popping through my mind. Like, what What if there's a convict on the loose? Uh, what would happen? And, and we're in the middle of the woods. And who would come help us? You know, we're like 40 miles from the nearest town. And, you know, what, hap- what would happen if my daughter went missing? Like, how would you find her in these woods? It'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack. And how far would I go to get my kid back? Like it would be like the worst feeling. You get that, that pit in your stomach. I've had my, my daughter go missing for like five or 10 minutes at an event once. And it was like, it felt like hours. It was terrifying because you were thinking you're never going to see them again, you, you know? And, uh, and so all of those questions started kind of germinating and, and became this uh, idea for this film. And then I, I, I thought about it for a long time. And then I, I really wanted to focus in on the parents' relationship 
the mom and dad because I've read when something tragic happens like that, you know, a lot of times the the the, the parents, the the husband and wife, their marriage falls apart because they start blaming each other. You know, so I thought, okay, well, would they blame each other? Would they? team up sometimes when you team up to look for to, to do something it actually brings you closer together you know uh and then in college i studied the five stages of loss elizabeth kubler ross's five stages of grieving and i remembered uh the grieving process and like i wanted to kind of you know do a, a study on that i'm like what you know what are the stages of loss and and and, and how could we watch the parents go through those stages and 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 so um i wanted to make sure though that it wasn't such a heavy film because i've seen a lot of films that are deal with missing kids and it gets so heavy it's so hard to watch and even though it's you know not easy to watch the parents go through what they're going through i wanted to set it in the vein of a thriller and a psychological thriller so that you kind of feel like you're cracking the case along with yeah. the parents that you could actually figure this out and maybe save the day and like if you could solve this case then you know you, you it's like uh, you're you're part of the movie and uh and so i kind of structured it that way and then and then with jason patrick's character jason patrick plays the, the sheriff who's who's uh, kind of searching for the, the missing child. And I wanted to give him also in, in his life, he had, he had a child that, that died of a drug overdose years prior because I wanted him to carry that weight around so that when he actually has to solve this case, it gives him, uh, it gives him a second chance at, at possibly have, redeeming himself for not being, a, be, being able to save his own son. So if he could save this kid, uh, then he could kind of feel better about, you know, the loss of his own child. So, again, it deals with loss for, for that character. And then I thought, uh, well, the relationship between the sheriff, uh, Jason Patrick's character, and his wife, I wanted to show how that would be like the ghost of Christmas future for Tom and Anne's character if their marriage kind of uh, takes a toll because of this. And so if you if you look watch the movie, when you're watching the movie – Jason Patrick's character and his wife are like ships passing in the night. Like they're they're completely just disconnected because the loss of their own child has broken their marriage. So even though they're still kind of together, just broken. And I always found in relationships like when you're fighting with somebody, people think that's bad. But I always think if you're fighting with somebody, there's still an energy exchange. So you can get through that, you know? It's when you stop fighting with somebody and you're, you're the couple that's sitting at the dinner table and neither one of you are talking and there's no energy exchange and it's just, uh, you know, you're not paying attention to each other. That's when the relationship is so broken. It's just unrepairable. You know, you're just kind of in your own worlds and not even paying attention to each other. So so Jason's going through that with his wife, his character. And then Tom and Am, you know, if, if they if they don't team up to find their daughter or they let this uh, tragedy kind of affect their marriage, then they'll become uh, like the sheriff and his wife. So in a way, it's really, it's a way their journey is really keeping their marriage alive because they're teaming up in a way to, to find their kid. Even sometimes when they're at odds and they're fighting, they, they, they're still not broken to the point where they're the sheriff and his wife. You know, I'm curious and keeping this, of course, spoiler free. Did you have 
the ending outlined before you started writing this? Or was this sort of during your writing process? How were you, did you come up with it right away or did you discover it during the writing process? I had the ending right away. Like I knew that that was where the parents, you know, ended up and this is how the film kind of ends. And then it was the journey of getting there. It's almost in a way where the ending brings them to a certain amount of acceptance, you know, and when they have that acceptance, uh, that's kind of like where the, the crescendo of the movie happens. Uh, but, but they have to go through all those other stages of grief to get there and they're kind of stuck in those other stages before they get to the acceptance. And then sometimes, you know, with grieving, even when you get to acceptance, you can slide right back into the cycle if you're not careful, you know? So, so I didn't want to just leave off on, uh, okay, now, now they've had this, you know, full circle and now they're, they're, they're fine. Um, so it's hard cause I don't want to, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, it's really about that journey of the characters of, of, of Thomas and Anne's characters finding, uh, going through all the, the uh, stages until they get to that. But I did have the ending and then, and I lived with it for a very long time. I mean, I wrote the script in three weeks and people are always like, wow, that's really mm -hmm. impressive. And I lived with it in my head for like a year and a half to two years before I even start writing. I often get an idea for something and then I kind of sit with it and then it's almost like you imagine that world. It's all like it lives in your imagination and you're building it and you're building it and you're building it. A lot of times other writers have like cards and they'll have boards and they'll structure things on a wall. And it's I do that all in my head. And then when I have the beginning, middle and end and I have all the characters flushed out in my mind and I kind of see the movie, then I start sitting down to type it out. And by the time that happens, it's almost writing itself because my fingers are going so fast. And sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, it's going in this direction. And, oh, and I'll just go with it there. And, and I like that because it feels like it's coming through me as opposed to coming, you know, I'm forcing something. And, and, and that's when it feels the best, when it feels like it's just kind of literally coming through you. What you've done here from, from my viewing of the film is you, you did one of these expertly crafted films where everyone is a suspect. And I just really, I really enjoyed that because we're just watching the film. It's trying to solve the puzzle while watching it in real time. And what I really, really, I mean, was just blown away with some of the decisions that the, the main characters that Thomas and Anne make, there's that line. And I think it almost gets crossed a little bit. And it's like, this is, yeah. this is insane. Like, I'm, I'm wondering during this writing process, you know, did you feel like that, that was the way to go? Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over the edge with these guys. And, mm -hmm. and it, it was very effective. It felt to me like in the beginning, there's some things that happen that they, you know, it's, you get your judgment clouded when you're that desperate. You know, and when somebody, if you're missing your child and somebody says that person over there knows where your kid is, there's nothing you wouldn't do to get that kid back. And you might do things that you normally wouldn't do because you're that desperate to find out information. So I felt like there were times when I sat there and these characters wanted, were doing things that were completely started to become unraveled, you know, uh, and sometimes you're like, oh my God, they're, they're acting so insane because, but, but when the stakes are that high and your child's missing, there's, you know, again, it, it, it warrants that, especially when you're like the mama bear trying to protect your baby cubs, there's nothing you wouldn't do. I think Paul, uh, who's Thomas Jane's character is a little bit more, you know, tries to be more reasonable or rational sometimes, but whereas Anne's character is just about 
instinct, pure motherly instinct. You know, she sees something and she'll go for it. And Tom's character is like, well, wait, let's think about this for a second. But then it's too late. You know, things start to have them where they go down this downward spiral and you're watching them go down this downward spiral out of pure desperation and uh, to, to get their children back. And, 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 then, and then at the same time, you're watching their marriage kind of uh, crumble and then come together and then crumble again and, and come together again. Um, so oftentimes relationships can be saved just by teaming up for something. You know what I mean? Like you have a common enemy and all of a sudden the two people stop fighting and start teaming up to, to battle something. And so it's almost like they needed to have that uh, common enemy to team up with in order to like bond because they're going through such trauma. And I like that Thomas Jane's Paul, the character of Paul, like you said, he's, he's a little bit more rational, but mm. when things start to happen, he is standing by her no matter what. Yeah. And, and that, that really spoke to me. Like this is a, this is a bond that they've, they've been through something. You can't figure it out, but they've been through something and he is willing to do whatever it takes to protect her. Yeah. And I think there's a level of guilt there. I mean, I will say this is a little spoiler, but you find out partway through the movie that he cheated on his wife at one point and that this their daughter was the glue that kept their marriage together so without you know that glue what do they have without without their daughter you know keeping them together like do they really have a relationship and so i think uh paul uh, thomas jean's character is very riddled with guilt because of that but i always looked at his behavior in the film uh and his support of going down this rabbit hole that his uh, wife goes down is the ultimate form of love for him especially towards the end and again I, it's, there's a moment in the film at the end uh where he literally it's hard to say without giving the the, the, the movie away but he, he he shows that support very strongly because he's like if i don't show this support in this moment i'll lose her forever you know and so he ends up uh, supporting her and, and, and teaming up with her uh, because because he without that, he wouldn't have her, you know, and it's like he, in the movie, he's lost his daughter and he can't afford to lose his wife, too. And so it's almost higher stakes in his mind because he's like, I've, I can't end up with nothing, you know, so I'll do anything. And I think he even says this. I'll do anything to make sure I don't lose you, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and towards the end of the episode, we'll get into a, 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 a spoiler discussion about it. Mm -hmm. We'll give uh, the listeners plenty of warning. So you've got the script. It's finished. You know, let, take me through the process of, of getting this film made. What, what's the time frame? What, what year are we in? Oh, geez. I wish it was uh, quicker to get films made. I mean, I, I wrote a movie called Lucy's and I wrote that in three weeks. And that took like seven or eight years to get made. And again, three weeks is typing and writing. And I lived with that in my mind for a year and a half as well. Uh, so I, so, so the, the hardest part really, I think is finding the financing, finding people that, uh, bring, you know, give you the money to actually make the project. Uh, because with that project, I didn't really change the script all that much. The, the, the movie I shot Lucy's is very similar to 98% the same as the script that I wrote. It just took me that long to get in the right hands, you know, to, to give me the money to make it. And it was the same thing for this film. I think I wrote this script seven or eight, seven or eight years ago. And like, again, I wrote it in three weeks and the script that I made was very similar to the script that I wrote. So it wasn't like I was working on it through the years. It's just a matter of finding 
the right person to get that script in their hands and then you say uh yeah i like this i want to make it and when i wrote it originally i thought well i could play the dad and someone will just direct it and then i did a movie i directed my first feature called breaking and exiting uh, which i was on for your show uh last year and and i really enjoyed the process of directing and and so when it came time to you know think about well what do i want to do for my second movie to direct I thought, well, why don't I direct this, you know, of The Vanished? But I, but I didn't want to take on directing and being the lead because I, I still wanted to focus in on, on the directing part, you know. It's only my second feature, and I thought it might be too much for me to, 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 to do, you know. Uh, and it was a bigger undertaking, this movie, as well, than my first feature that I directed. So I thought, well, I didn't act in my first movie that I directed, uh, uh, Breaking and Exiting. So I thought, well, I'll put myself in a smaller role in this because everybody was having so much fun. And when I was directing my first feature, I was like, well, I got a little jealous. I was like, well, I want to act in there too. So when this movie came to be, I was fortunate enough when I decided to direct it, I got the money and we ended up going to Thomas Jane. Uh, he really liked it. And then Thomas and I sat down, we were going through ideas for someone to play his wife. And, uh, and he had worked with Anne Heche before on a show called Hung. I hadn't seen them act together, but I liked the idea that him and Anne knew each other because it's difficult sometimes for actors to show up on set and you're like, okay, so you have like a 15 year marriage go, you know, and they have to form this connection and this chemistry. And a lot of times the actors do it, but it's when they know each other, there's, there's something there that in that chemistry that you just can't, you know, act or fake, you know? So I knew that if they knew each other and they had worked together before, they would have this chemistry in the shorthand and uh and that would play as a marriage couple and they'd be comfortable with each other so then Anne came on board she read the script and liked it and then i gave it to jason patrick and, and jason rounded out the movie but there was a role of the deputy and i was like well i'll play that that sounds fun you know but i gotta tell you it was a lot of work man like i i, I didn't realize how hard it was and i have a whole new respect for directors that also are the leads in their movies because when you're directing, it takes like you're multitasking to the maximum level. I mean, you have people coming up to you all day long asking you questions. Do, should, do you like this shirt that the actors in? Should we switch it out for that shirt? And the sound department, you know, asking questions and the hair and makeup. And, and every department is relying on you. You're like the captain of this ship. And then you have stuff that's being thrown at you all day long just universe is throwing obstacles in your way i think we were talking before there was an article i did where i said there was wild hogs uh, in the area one day and it shut us down and there was a dryer that started smoking in the middle of the scene we weren't even using it it just started smoking and the whole rv ended up going up in smoke we had to clear everybody out and wait an hour on that and you have like a certain amount of time it says every day's a race of a clock because the sun goes down. And when the sun goes down, you can't film and you got to get all your day stuff. So it's like you got to utilize every every minute counts. So when you have to shut down for an hour for this or an hour for that, you're dying a small death inside. But I digress because I was talking about, you know, being in the film, I, I, I would show up and I have all this stuff that I'm dealing with already. And now I have to know my lines and I got to put on my costume and I got to go through hair and makeup and I'm sitting there acting in the, and I'm in the middle of acting and I'm like, Oh, well, am I in frame? Is he, is he doing the camera move? Right. And I have to speak right. And so there's like 10,000 things swirling around your head uh, and your shot list. And, and so, I mean, there's this small amount of time that I, I, I was in the film. Uh, those days were even harder. 
but I hope to grow one day to be able to, to multitask enough to, you know, have my brave heart right. film where I like, you know, do both. I, it's uh, it's it's not easy though. I've always wondered about that. I've always wondered how the directors. I think you you mentioned Braveheart. I always think about Clint Eastwood when he's always you know movies he's directing because you're not watching yourself. You can't watch yourself in the scene. So do you have someone else standing by saying, "Hey, Peter, this is what you did. I think you should do it from this angle." I mean, I mean, how does that work? Or are you just can, can just watching the, like the playback? Like, how does that work? Well, sometimes on bigger movie sets they have a playback, so you can go back finish the scene, you could watch the scene and you could say, oh, I like my performance, I don't like my performance, I like this camera move, I don't like the camera move. But on an independent film, you don't have that luxury or time to sit there and like watch your takes and critique them. So, I mean, honestly, I, I, I've sometimes had them uh, video the monitor with their iPhone just to make sure that the framing was right. And then the rest, I would just be like, I think I, it was good performance-wise. If not, I'll have to cut around me because I, I got to move on. I got to get to the other actors' coverage. And as a director, like that's more important to me because they're the main leads. And like I, I put myself on the background. But then, you again, you're just kind of relying on instinct uh, to go, I think that was good. Uh, you do a few takes, and then you got you to gotta move on. You know? Where's the filming location? Wow. Uh, well... We did uh, Alabama. It was Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You know, it was difficult because I, I needed an RV park that was kind of this smaller mom and pop RV uh, park. I, I had been to some like those in the middle of the woods, and uh, there's maybe like 10, 15, 20 spots, you know. And even that is a lot for what I needed. I really needed something that was like eight to 10 spots, you know. And I was having a hard time finding it because. We were shooting in Alabama, and every RV park I went to was like 150, 200 spots with a water water slide, and like you know they just became massive. And uh, to, to get people to come to our to these RV parks, they they just they're more and more and more stuff, and it just becomes like a parking lot full of uh, RVs. So I needed something that was more tucked away and smaller and intimate, and I was having such a hard time finding it. And then literally like a week before filming. We found this spot that we filmed at. It was just a lake, but I thought, you know what? It has the right amount of space that I need, and uh, and I could see the layout of like where the uh, general store would go and where the uh, the, the the little kid who who does the the maintenance where I could put his you know spot and where the RVs would go. And making an RV park for filming, like you're hammering in some meters, you know what I mean? So it's not like it, huge overhaul i mean we had to make the rv park store and when you first drive in and some signs but it wasn't like a huge to do it was just more about finding you know a beautiful lake because that becomes that's a character in itself that that you know location because you're there the whole time you know and then really finding the space to map it out so that not everybody's on top of each other because when you're going through a mystery like this a mystery movie you can't have everybody on top of each other. There's no mystery. You're like, hey, where are you going? <laughs> Why are you leaving your RV? Like, there has to be enough space where the parents can go here or this guy can go there. And maybe they meet up in the woods, you know. So this spot had all of that. And I felt so blessed. Uh, every once in a while for all the crazy obstacles that would come our way. We had like rainstorms that took all the electricity out one night. A lot of insanity. But to be fair, the universe would drop me some nuggets too. You know, like I'd be driving... And there was this, um, the groundskeeper was supposed to live in this van, 
you know? And I was driving by and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, that's it. There was like a broken down van that was somebody had like a sign that, uh, for their shop that was like propped up on and it didn't even work. And I, and I pulled over, I said, well, let's find out if this guy will rent us this little van thing. And then the guy who owned it ended up coming to work on the movie with us. And, uh, and that guy was great too. His name was Dana too. And Dana was, uh, so helpful because he knew the area and whenever I needed something like Dana was like there and he had it. Like I remember when we were shooting at the sheriff's house and I was like, man, I, I really props didn't have it, but I needed a phone that was mounted on the wall, you know, cause uh, I needed a shot where the sheriff calls his calls me from a house phone and no, we didn't have it. And Dana said, I live 10 minutes down the road. I've got one. And he, he went and got one. And then the first day of filming, you know, the sheriff was supposed to have this, you know, cowboy hat and he's like the sheriff of the town. And I asked for uh, the sheriff's hat and they, they gave me those tr super trooper hats <laughs> and it just looked ridiculous for, for Jason Patrick. It looked like uh, one of those, you know, traffic cops with the, like Smokey the Bear hats, you know. And I was like, no, that's not the hat. And then they were like, well, we don't have one. I guess we'll go without one. Uh, and Dana again was like, I've got a cowboy hat at home. I think it might work. And he was back in five minutes and he had the, the, they slapped a little badge on top of the hat and it was like, couldn't have been more perfect. You know what I mean? So when you're doing indie filmmaking, you rely on those little, um, happy accidents that, that just they, the universe gives you. Um, cause there's so many other things that, that all of a sudden you're trying to, bake this cake and you don't have the ingredients for, but then all of a sudden you get some other ingredient and the cake ends up being even better than you thought, you know? That's awesome. Speaking of Jason Patrick, one, the hat works perfectly and he, he wears that beard tremendously. Yeah. I was, I just, I just thought I mean, he's really pulling off the beard. Peter, the movie looks amazing. And I have to ask oh. you about the DP. Who did you work with on that? Because the film looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, Corey, uh, Garyak, uh, he, DP'd a movie that I acted in called Running with the Devil. Yeah. And uh, and him and I hit it off on that movie. And I floated him the script and I said, yeah, I'm trying to make this movie. If I get financing, I'd love for you to DP it. And uh, and he was great. He's such a trooper. I mean, we were in the muck together. You know, there was so much stuff we were going through. But he was like my right-hand man. And, you know, we, uh, we I'm really appreciative. And he shot some really beautiful stuff. He's really great at lighting and, and, and his camera stuff is really wonderful. And I hope to do it again with him. Uh, I really do. He's, he's, a, he's a fantastic DP. Uh, but, but also with Jason Patrick, you know, Jason's a lot heavier in the movie. And I had somebody say, um, wow, Jason Patrick really let himself go, you know. And that's the genius of Jason Patrick because he had a fat pad on. Oh. He, he, his beard made him look fat. But Jason, when, when he ended the night, like he took this fat pad off and, all, and like all of a sudden he became a completely different person. He was like thin and fit and like energetic. And then you put the fat pad on and the way he moved, the way he mm -hmm. walked, the way he spoke was like a mastercraft and watching like acting because there's a scene where he actually I'm on his feet and I'm watching him, him go up the stairs and he's supposed to be drunk, you know, and then in the movie and just being on his feet and watching him walk up the stairs, that heavy kind of walk when you're drunk. I mean, he's, it's, it's just his feet and it's, he's, he's brilliant. You know what I mean? You can't, it's, it's so interesting. Cause like 
you, you would think that when you're on feet, there's only so much you could do. But the way he walks up the stairs, you're like, yeah, I've, I've done that walk drunk a million times, that slow, heavy walk up the stairs. Uh, and it was so good that I was like, I don't want to go in for coverage because I liked just being on his feet. Um, but he was he's really talented, man. I mean, that role is, was hard because on paper, it's a hard role to write because on paper, there's a sadness uh, and a brokenness about that character. And you could describe it on paper, but it's it's not something you can actually write. It's just it comes with the casting. And I always knew that there was something really special about the role of the sheriff but it's gonna take the right actor to bring it because I can't write that. Like you could say the character's broken and he's sad, has the sadness in his eyes, but physically the actor has to like go there and bring that. And there's a there's a scene where he says, uh, you know, I lost my boy to a, a, a drug overdose years ago, and like you, your heart just breaks for him when he says that one line. Like you believe every word of it. You know, and uh, and he just carries that heaviness and that sadness, and and it's such a juxtaposition with Tom and Anne because Tom and Anne are so wired and jittery and desperate, and there's an energy there that's uh, that's just really high, and then you have Jason who's just like counter, it's like a counterweight because he's just so um, qu- his performance is so quiet. And, and you have to kind of almost lean in to, to see it, to feel it. and But it makes you want to lean into to his storyline, you know? And he's very authentic in it. It's just, a, it was such a believable performance of someone who's, you know, he, he's just wearing it on his face. This, 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 he's been through so much, but he takes his job so serious. And, and when he tells, you know, the parents, you know, I'm, I've never lost a child and I'm, I'm going to find yours. You know, you believe that about him. You believe that he believes that he's saying that it was just, it was, it was a brilliant performance. And the interesting thing about uh, Sheriff is, you know, because he's so focused in on finding this kid because he needs to, you know, it's almost like he has to, in order to like redeem himself in a way, he just doesn't see the trees through the forest, forgive the pun, but like, he has these blinders on, you know, and, and even through the movie, there's people that want to come in and help. Like my character is always like, hey, the FBI caught when they want to come and help. But he doesn't want it because he needs to he needs to have this. He needs to, like, solve this case for his own retribution of like, you know, uh, of healing for his own healing. And so it's all, there's a real sadness at the end of this movie when when he kind of fails at it, you know. Yeah. So when you wrap up principal photography, Take me through post-production, uh, you know, who's your editor, how, you know, how involved were you in the editing process? Oh, uh, again, it's an indie movie, so, like, a lot of times when you're doing studio movies, you have a whole team of people around you, and, like, you just kind of oversee it. And you're like, oh, this is great, I could sit here and eat popcorn while they do the music, and they do the editing, and they do this, but, like, it was really, I, I kind of liked the people I used on my first film, and uh, Breaking and Exiting, so I brought them all back. And, uh, and they're just, it's a smaller, intimate group. So it's me and my editor that I used on Breaking and Exiting, uh, Vaughn Bean. And Vaughn and I, uh, does, he does his cut because I like him to like, if you sit there and try to micromanage sometimes, you might not get things that you thought of. So what I like to do is I trust Vaughn enough to do an assembly and to kind of start whittling it down. And to see, like, okay, well, what would Vaughn do with it? And then if it starts, when I see it, I'm like, okay, well, then it becomes about sculpting. 
You know what I mean? It's like taking this mound of clay that's starting to appear as a statue, and now you start smoothing corners out, and you know, uh, really start getting in there, start carving, uh, and and taking stuff down, and bringing stuff in, and maybe trying a different take here and there. Uh, and that takes months, like literally two to three months yeah. of of that. You're, and so it's a it's a process because you're going from being around a hundred and twenty thirty people every day. And it's like uh, every day is an adrenaline rush and every day you're racing the clock to now you have all the lumber and you got to build the house because the movie really gets made in that editing room and you can really screw it up. You could fuck it up or you could really like, you know, make something that's really bad. Good. Uh, So it's like there's a. There's a lot of movies that you could make in that editing room, and, and it's it's a matter of like trusting your gut to go with the one that, that. And sometimes it starts forcing you to go in a certain direction, and you kind of go with it. But it's it's all about carving and shaping, and but it takes time. It's like two to three months of sitting in a dark room with just one other guy. Yeah. And sometimes you come out of that dark room and you've been there for twelve hours, and you're just like. <laughs> you know, seeing spots and then you'll go back to the editing room and you think, Oh, I did a really good job yesterday. And then you watch the cut and you're like, what was I thinking? And you got to scrap things and start over. Cause you know, you start getting this crazy, uh, black hole of, you know, being in the, the room for 12 hours is sometimes you got to s- sit away from it. And then after carving for two, three months and you have a cut that you like, what I do is I like to show friends and like people that, uh, you know, because you lose perspective. There were days in the editing room where I love the movie and then there's days in the editing room where you hate the movie. And then you're like, but I never felt like, oh, I didn't have the pieces, uh, which is good. Because if you don't have the pieces, then you're screwed. You just don't have them, you know. But I had the pieces. It's just a matter of like, well, do I want to go with this take or that take? And uh, like, do you want to go with the close-up or do you want to go with the wider shot, you know? And and that just takes, again, sometimes there's no right or wrong. They're both good. It's just you got to make a decision, you know, and then not look back. So when And you- then I brought in my composer, sorry, uh, Sasha um who was just fantastic and 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 i love working with sasha because you know i don't uh his name is sasha chaban who he, uh, sasha actually won best com- composing uh, at the mammoth film festival for this movie uh we won best uh, composer best music and uh and a festival favorite film which i was really pleased about uh so they liked it there too but but i don't know en- enough about music to actually like score anything or write anything or or tell Sasha like this is what I'm thinking. I could I could say like strings or you know I need more instruments, but it, I have a very limited vocabulary with music. But what I like about Sasha is like he can somehow crawl inside my head and figure out like emotionally what I'm looking for, and he kind of transcribes that into music. So for the scene where the kids uh, went missing in the beginning of the movie, it's a long scene. It's like three minutes. Uh, where the daughter goes missing. And it was a difficult piece to score because there's a lot of ups and downs. And I and I told him this, you know, he tried a couple of different variations and I just didn't feel like it was hitting it on the nose. I said, listen, and I told him the story about I, I when my daughter went missing uh, in real life. I had my uh, my youngest daughter, I was in Italy, and I was up on this, uh, 
I went up to see this guy play in the mountains. So they take this huge gondola up 10,000 feet up into the mountains. And there was a guy playing on a cello in the middle of the Italian Alps. It was beautiful. And everybody was like picnicking around him. And there's no microphone. It's just kind of like the, the, the mountain uh, is like carrying the music, you know. But there was hundreds of people listening on picnic baskets. And it was such a fun time. And then – Afterwards, there was a restaurant, and we, my, me and my family went to the restaurant, and I went to go throw something out. When I turned around, my daughter was gone. Uh, she was 10 at the time. But I thought, because my family was sitting like five feet away at a picnic table, that, oh, she's probably with one of my family members, you know? Uh, so I didn't think anything of it. So I sat down, and little by little, 15 minutes ago was by, and I'm not thinking she's missing at all, because my family's was five you know, five feet away at a picnic table when I, when I turned around last time I saw her. And little by little, everybody starts sitting down at the table. And there's about 12 or 13 family members. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Where's Fiona? You know, where is she? And nobody, they're all eating. They're like, oh, she's probably inside. She's probably in the bathroom. And I was like, this wave of panic washes over you. It starts in this pit of your stomach. And then it just starts going up, up, up. And it's almost like your blood starts to flow up and you get locked and you feel like, Oh my God, what is happening? And I'm like, whoa, nobody eats. Everybody put your food down right now. Nobody takes another bite until I find my daughter. And everybody's like, you're acting crazy. She's probably inside. Now my knees are shaking because I'm like, okay, maybe I am crazy. I run inside into the bathroom to see the, you know, by the bathrooms and I'm waiting. My cousin comes out out of the girl's bathroom. And I say, is, is, is my daughter in there? No. Again, complete like, I want to throw up because I went through the whole restaurant. She's not there. She's not in the bathroom. She's not outside. Now where, where do I look? Right. And so there's this progression of like complete being uh, frozen to like almost being sick to being like, okay, let me snap back into reality. And then, and then, and then there's a calmness that comes over you. And then there's a fear that washes over you. And it's like all these mixtures, mixtures of emotions. So, I get back to the table and my cousin says, well, maybe she went to the restaurant down at the other side, which is a good 15 minute walk in the other direction. You could see the restaurant, but it's way off in the distance. And I said, why would a 10 year old walk 15 minutes to that restaurant by herself when this is a restaurant right here? We said, we're going here. I don't know, but maybe she went that way. So I said, okay, you guys stay here in case she comes back. I'm going to go run to that restaurant and I'm running literally on this pathway almost knock, knocking people off the mountain as i'm running full speed uh and the whole time in my mind i'm thinking well, maybe i won't ever see my daughter again i'm seeing helicopters looking for her. maybe she fell off the mountain maybe somebody chloroformed her and she took her down the gondola what if she went down the gondola like with somebody like literally all these scenarios going through your mind and i get to the end of the path and i look up she's sitting on a rock crying and i run over and i hug her and i said are you okay what happened she said i there was a man that i thought was your dad he had a checkered red shirt on and i thought it was him so i started following him thinking it was my grandfather and then he turned around and i realized it wasn't him and i didn't know where to go so i just sat down on this rock and i was like and it was like 15 20 minutes had gone by where i didn't see her so like that was so terrifying and i had already written this movie as well but i was trying to explain that i explained that story to sasha and he said okay and then he got it and then he watched the scene and i said let's just watch the scene and just play around with some stuff as you're watching and he started playing around with synthesizing the music and literally went through the whole scene and got to the end 
And that's the, that one take was the take that's in the movie because it was so spot on and so beautiful. And like, you could feel the emotional ride of going quiet to going loud to like coming down and like giving you that emotion. And I turned and I said, wow, that's incredible. And then a week later I heard it again and he had gone in and fixed a couple of things. Cause he was like, you know, I didn't know. He didn't tell me that he fixed it. I said, you changed it. He said, yeah, I changed it because, you know, sometimes the rhythm was off on the beat, you know? And I said, no, go back to that because I like that it's not perfect. There's an uncomfortable uncomfortableness about it being not perfect. And it's like, even though it's not on the the beat, like, like you think it should be musically, it leaves you with this uncomfortableness and this like, um, this feeling of like something is off and, and, and that's what works. So then he just, we went back to the original, but it was funny that he tried to like smooth it out, you know, cause as a composer, you're like, well, I mean, I like it, but I can make this better and this better and this better. And it's not about making it better. It's that scene when you're going through that emotional ride of losing your kid, it's uncomfortable. It's not smooth. It's anything but smooth, you know? So I was just, uh, I just really enjoyed watching him come up with that after feeling the, the motions and being able to transcribe it. I know how effective that scene is and, and I'm excited to rewatch the film. I'm going to watch it again after, after we're done recording because anyone that has seen the movie knows that it definitely warrants a rewatch, especially when you know the ending. But that particular scene you're referencing, I mentioned to you before we were recording, I was watching this with my girlfriend and she has an eight-year-old daughter. And, and during that, that scene, I just kind of glanced over to her and she's almost not looking at the screen. Because she's understanding more so than me, because I don't have children. So she's understanding more so than me, just the gravity of that moment. And I feel I feel like she was even dealing with th that emotion in her head. So it was just so, so effective. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, uh, yeah. And I just, when it was over, I said, what'd you think? She goes, that was just such a ride. That was such a ride. And, 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 and I, she said, I was having some anxiety during the film because of, because of what the parents are going through. And I understand those emotions. So before we get into a spoiler filled discussion about the ending, I, I want to yeah. just take me through the first time you premiered the movie. Cause this is something that, that you thought of. It's something that you wrote. It, it you drew from inspirations of things that happened to you to see it with an audience for the first time. Tell me what that experience was like. You know, I watched it at uh, Mammoth Film Festival. It was the first time I saw it with a, with a real audience. I mean, I'd seen it with friends to try to get notes, you know, and, and then when the film's locked, you give it over to an audience. And, um, and I gave the, the film over to the audience at, at Mammoth Film Festival, and, and I was excited that people got it there, you know, because you're like, well, people are going to understand it. They're going to get it, and you hope for the best. Uh, but like I said, we won, you know, festival favorite at the film festival and then, and then Sasha won best composing. And, and so you're like, okay, well these people understood it and they got it, but it's still art. And there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they, they have their opinions. And so even this weekend I was super nervous cause I'm like, well, I wonder if reviewers will like it. I wonder if the audience will like it. I, I mean, at this point, you give it over to the world and, and it's this thing that no longer is yours. You know, I've, I made it and you give it over. And so the, we got a really nice response though. We got some really great reviews and, uh, and audiences seem to like it a lot. And we came in uh, the number two drama uh, on the iTunes charts this weekend and, and number three overall on all genres. So, I mean, I'm super happy. I, I'd love to be number one. So maybe if you haven't seen it this weekend, uh, check it out to see what everybody's talking about and, and, and help find the Taylor in the movie. Like you could, 
what's fun for me is like I used to read those Encyclopedia Brown books, you know, yeah. when I was a kid. And it was like I always loved solving the case, you know what I mean? So what, what is fun about this, as heavy as the material is, you get to kind of live through the movie and kind of go, okay, I'm going to crack this case. I'm going to find out which one of these people took the kit. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into major, major spoilers for The Vanish. So, uh, again, I'll urge you, if you've listened this far and you haven't seen the film, please pause this podcast. Watch the movie. It's available on all VOD platforms. I watched it on iTunes today. So, Peter... You, you mentioned that you had the ending from the very beginning. I want to just take you through my experience. Like you mentioned, you know, like you, you referenced the Encyclopedia Brown. Like I was on the case watching this movie. I was like trying to figure out who did this. Never for a moment. And, and this is brilliant. And this speaks to the brilliance of, of the script you wrote here. Never for a moment did I see that ending coming. Tell me, where do you draw the inspiration for that ending? Um, are we allowed to talk about it? Yes. Or are we, okay. Are we so doing so a, a... for spoilers for the movie, their daughter passed away years ago and they're just dealing with this sort of this mass psychosis of, of, of the, the, the stages of grief, which are brilliantly laid out in the film. And so I'll let, I'll let you go a little bit more into the, into the ending of the film. But again, I stress, I, I did not see that coming. Okay. So if you're, if you're listening right now, you haven't seen the movie. Turn this off because it's going to spoil everything for you. And uh, and please don't share it because it's going to spoil a lot for a, a lot of people. But so the ending for me really became this uh, cycle that the parents go through. This, this you know, the stages of loss. They haven't, over the last five years, what happens is you find out that they lost their daughter five years ago. And, and, and the daughter is, you know, they go around in, in this scenario, they went around blaming other people so that they didn't blame each other because in blaming each other, their marriage would have crumbled. So it's almost like Tom's character, it's the ultimate form of love is playing this game where they keep their daughter alive in their minds. And there's actually a, a, a syndrome called fo folio du, which are two people having a shared delusion. And sometimes one person will be in it more and sometimes the other person will be in it more, but they play that, they play off of each other and create this delusion so that they can keep their daughter alive in their minds and so that they don't uh, blame each other and so the marriage doesn't crumble. And and at the end of the movie, when they finally get to acceptance and he, he, he Tom looks over and he sees his wife and he realizes he's lost her. Like he she'll never be the same and, and uh, their marriage will never be the same. And so he ends up hitting the reset button on the entire game so that they can live in that fantasy world because they're just not ready to deal with the trauma and the, and the healing that needs to take place. Uh, and so that's kind of where I, where I wanted the ending to go for me was I didn't really want to make it about, it's more a movie about this couple that went through a tragedy uh, and is going through a tragedy and how they're using that tragedy to bond you know, and, and again, even in the movie when they're kind of fighting with each other about things, they're still they're still connecting and they're bonding over this shared experience. And if they don't have that experience to share and they don't have something to bond over, then they become uh, Sheriff Baker and his wife, which are two ships passing in the night and like a marriage that's just dissolved, you know. And so that's kind of the story that I wanted to tell. And that's the ending that I found. And then there's a device that that basically the sheriff finds out, you know, that the that that the child finally he finds out that the child just doesn't exist. Because when you first start a movie, and I asked my FBI friend of this, I was very, very careful not to cheat 
the audience. I asked them, I said, would you question if the child was alive? If you went to a, you know, a, a case where the child went missing and they said, no, I mean, if the parents said that the kid was there and the RV park owners said the kid was there, I have no reason to believe that the kid's not there. So I'm not going to check the birth certificate. I'm going to find out who took the kid. And that's where you put your focus on. And so that's where everybody's focus in the movie is, is finding that kid. And then you don't find out till the end. And well, that kid just uh, doesn't really exist there. Uh, it's just the parents kind of made it up. And then it kind of the, it explains their behavior because a lot of times they're doing such drastic, crazy things that you're like, I wanted them to feel a little off. You know what I mean? Because I felt like if it felt too dramatic and everything was going too perfect, it would cheat the audience and the audience wouldn't have any chance to figure it out. And then it would really come out of nowhere, you know. But if you're watching the movie and you're like, well, they're acting a little bizarre and, you know, they just keep going down this rabbit hole of like more craziness and either they have the worst luck ever or like they're, uh, you know, something's not right here. And, and so I wanted to have that seed planted to give the audience a way to figure it out. There's a, there's a moment at the end of the film where the sheriff finds out by, you know, seeing a picture of the parents with the Twin Towers and he realizes, well, the Twin Towers went down, you know, 2001. The kid can't be 10 years old because she's pregnant with the with the child. And I knew that that the Twin Towers, everybody knows what that date is that the Twin Towers went down. You know, everybody that's watching this movie, it's such an iconic date uh, that it that that it becomes uh, very clear that uh, when you see that, that obviously that there's a specific date in mind that she had to be at when she was pregnant so that the math doesn't add up so the kid couldn't possibly be real, you know? And that's what Sheriff Baker finds out. Uh, but I did put it in the movie earlier. And if you go back and watch it, uh, you know, Anne's character's taking pictures off to give to the sheriff. And there's a picture with her pregnant and the Twin Towers are just peeking out above the RV. But they kind of look like part of the RV in a way. But if you're really paying attention, you'll you'll solve the case. You know what I mean? So I threw in little tidbits like that. Also, if you, it's a fun movie to go back and watch a second time, which is why I don't mind talking about the ending right now. Because if you go back and watch it a second time, there's a lot of double entendres uh, of dialogue that the, you're you as an audience member are watching a completely different movie than is what is really happening, which is kind of a fun thing. Because when the kid goes missing and uh, Tom's character is like, Anne's character is like, uh, where is she? She's not in the RV. And Paul goes, Tom's character goes running into the RV and he comes out and he's about to say, I found her, you know? Mm -hmm. So he's like, well, I, she's right. And he, she goes, Paul, she's not, she's not in there. And so he like, shit, I can't, I was about to say, take the game. Like I found her, she was hiding in the bathroom and she cut me off. So I, I have to continue playing this game in this direction because it's one of those things like you don't want to wake up the the person who's sleepwalking you know what i mean yeah. so it's almost like an unspoken rule that if she takes the game in one direction he has to follow you know and vice versa and there's a again spoiler alert a, a flashback at the end where there's a there's a scene where the dog died and in the flashback you realize well ann killed the dog you know because it was part of her um the part of blame which is one of the um, five stages of loss. And so she's standing there in this, um, in this flashback with a knife, to, you know, and she's debating whether she should do this or not. Cause it's her dog. And like, but it's, it's the dog or her. If she doesn't kill the dog, like the jig is up and she has to put blame on something, you know? And so if you watch the scene where, uh, prior to that, when, when Tom actually finds 
the dog and Anne's screaming that her dog is dead and the audience is like, who the hell killed the dog? You know, Tom's character when he comes out looks so pissed because he's like, fuck, you killed my dog, you know, but he's like, get inside. And he like, but it looks like he's pissed that the dog's dead, but he's really pissed at her because she keeps taking the game to places that are like, all right, now you've gone too far. Now you've gone too far. And on the boat, you know, he's about to tell the other couple, he says, you know, my, my wife just hasn't been the same since our daughter, you know, Taylor went missing. And he's talking about five years ago. And he's about to tell her the truth. And, 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 and again, Anne's character cuts him off and takes the game in a different direction. You know, so there's moments like that through the movie where they're talking about one thing that you think they're talking about something else. And even Tom says at the end of the movie, I'm not playing this game anymore. You know, she's gone. She's, she, we have to face facts. We have, we have to have acceptance. And, and he's talking about this game of, of keeping her alive in their minds, you know. And he says also in the beginning, uh, he's like, you know, I would do anything to not lose you. Uh, and that's true. Like, he's like, because she wants to tell the police, you know, uh, accidentally they, they kill this camper in the woods. And she's like, I think we should tell them the truth, Paul. And she's talking about the truth that the daughter's not real. And he says, we can't do that. They'll put you away. And I would do anything not to lose you. I've already lost our daughter. We're not losing you too. So they're literally having these conversations that the audience just isn't privy to what's really happening until the end. But so that's why it's fun if you go back and watch it knowing now there's moments like that that, that you'll pick up on. The film ends, like you said, with the sheriff discovering what's going on. We as the audience discover what's going on. But then we just see Thomas and Anne driving away in the RV. Was there ever a thought in your mind like, well, they're now on the run. Like they're on the lamb, if you will. So so did, you were always going to end it on that note, sort of an ambiguous ending. Are they going to get caught? Are they, are they just going to continue to drive? What was your thought process about the ending of the film? The ending for me was more, I mean, there was a draft where they actually took the other couple's kid <laughs> and they turn around and there's like another, they're calling her by their daughter's name. And like, but I thought that it was so sinister. And like, at that point you would just hate the parents. I mean, I, my, my whole thing was like, I hope the audience at the end of the movie feels sympathy towards them because they're sick. They're just not, uh, they haven't dealt with the tragedy. They haven't healed. And so they're not, sociopaths that were born as psychotic killers they're just so broken that they have to play this game so they're kind of like not right in the mind so i was always hoping that you you feel sympathy towards them at the end like when people read the script i had the best comment i ever got was like when people were like wow those parents are so fucked up <laughs> you know because it made me feel like okay so you feel for them because they're they're just have they're not mean-spirited they just, uh, they're broken, you know? So at the end, of what I was really going for, I wasn't concerned whether one day, you know, the cops might find them, might not, or maybe they're on the run or whatever, or maybe they go on another road trip and they play the game over again. To me, it was more about the uh, reset button of the game. Because what you find out at the end of the movie is that, and again, it, it was done, it crafted in a way not to cheat the audience, because in a lot of times in movies, you see the kid and it's it's uh, in the parents' imagination. You know what I mean? But I didn't want to have that 
be how you saw the kid in their imagination. So what you find out at the end of the movie is they were in the beginning of the movie, they're singing along with their daughter, but it's to a videotape of their daughter in the RV from five years prior. So you don't know that she's not actually in the RV. You know, you think that she's in there, but it's actually videotape of her singing the song and they're singing along with her. And if you notice in the beginning of the movie, I stay really tight on the parents' faces because they're kind of like their mouths are cut off. So they're kind of like miming along with what's on the tape already. You know what I mean? And, and so it's kind of more, mis- again, uh, a way to kind of show the audience that I, I tried to film it in a way to give them some clues that something's off about these parents right now, you know, by going in tight and by showing just pieces of their faces. And, and the, the scenes are disconnected from the daughter because the daughter's stuff is on a videotape. So like I never have them in the same shot, you know? And at the end of the movie, when he looks over and he sees uh, Anne's character is just completely broken and, and he's lost her, he hits the button and the tape pops back on. Yeah. And you realize the whole time that the daughter was just on that tape and, and, they, and they look at each other and slowly they start playing the game again. And then they become these, this happy couple that's singing this song because as long as they live in that delusion, they can find happiness and they don't have to deal with, there's an avoidance of the pain and there's an avoidance of, of what happened and they can disregard all of that and, and not process it and live in this space of being a happy family. And so in their minds, when they're driving off and they're singing the camp song again, it's come full circle. And, and the reason why he, he hits that button, it's again, the ultimate form of love is playing this game so that he doesn't lose his wife. And, uh, and when he looks over and he's like, I forced her into acceptance, but now I've lost her and I'm never, our marriage is never going to be the same. So he decides at that moment to just start the game over again because hmm. it's too painful to, you know, to, to, to not play it. Peter, it, it was brilliant. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying over and over again, like watching the film and, and I purposely went into this knowing very little about the plot of the movie. And when it was over, you know, I, I was just sat, sat there for a second and I was just like, this is, this was so well done. It was a ride. I'll tell you that it was, it was, it was a ride and it was a, it was a mystery. And it is a film that, like I said, I'm very much looking forward to watching this again tonight, knowing everything that I know. So before we wrap things up, the movie's available, and it says in select theaters. Is it showing anywhere in the United States right now? Yeah, I mean, there's about 20, 30 theaters, uh, you know, but if it's not playing near you, it's fine. You could get it on iTunes. You could get it on Amazon Prime. I mean, I would have loved to have a bigger, wider release, but honestly, I, I just want people to check it out and people to see it. So, like, with COVID right now, theaters are closed. If you don't want to go out and expose yourself or take the risk, I don't want you getting sick either. Sure. You know, if you feel like you're a, a town that it's safe and your theaters are open, you wear a mask, like go for it. Watch it on the big screen. I'd be totally stoked if it's playing in your area. But if not, you can rent it in the comfort of your own home. Uh, so, so I hope people will tune in and, and, and we came in third this weekend. Let's, let's, let's get it to number one this weekend. Absolutely. So I know this is, this is what's kind of taking up your time right now, the release of this film, but I have to ask you, know, what's next? What do you got? What's on the horizon for you? Um, I just, I have two movies that I acted in uh, called 13 Minutes and another movie called The Ravine. And those movies will come out probably sometime beginning of next year. And then what else do I have? It's been a really crazy year. So sure. it's like not, like we filming shut down completely. Yeah. So I've really just kind of used it to kind of recharge my batteries. Uh, but I do have a script, another script that I wrote 
that I'd like to direct next year. I have some producers on it trying to find the money uh, to make it. Hopefully it's not going to take another seven years because I want to film it next year. Uh, and I'm hoping that this film, you know, helps, you know, get the attention that to, to help me to make this uh, new film next year. And that one's more of like, uh, I mean, I'm, my acting career has always been very drastically different you know i've done like action and comedy and drama and uh, fantasy and and all different types of genres and and so with directing i don't think you'll ever be like oh he does that like quentin tarantino does that like I, I just like a good story so it might be you know breaking and exiting my first directorial feature uh, debut was a romantic dramedy and uh this one is a psychological thriller uh, the vanished uh, more of like a Hitchcock kind of film. And and my next film is more of like a an epic gang like movie. It's it's kind of in the vein of like Scarface and The Godfather. And it's uh it's a white kid who grows up in a Hispanic neighborhood uh and ends up building a multiracial gang and uh and then going a, a, to war with the Spanish gang that rejected him. You know, so it's like it's completely different. Uh, but it's fun. It's got action. It's got drama. A lot of drama, and uh, and I just always love that world. I've always been a fan of like Carlito's Way and yeah. Scarface and uh, The Godfather, and uh, and so you know the I wanted to write something in that that window that that vein, and and, and I'm hoping that I get to film it next year. Awesome. I I am uh, absolutely. And when I do, I'll be back. That's what I was about to say. I, I, I'm hoping that when that happens, you'll, you'll be back on the show. So, Peter, once again, the film is The Vanished. It opened this weekend. It's doing really good. It's a phenomenal film. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to just talk a little bit about the movie. And and, uh, and uh, I'll just, again, say I loved it. And I want everyone listening to this podcast to check that movie out. Oh, thanks. And if you've seen it, watch it again for so you see it through a different point of view now you know what i mean because it'll be fun for you to see through a different point of view knowing the ending and if you've seen it and liked it tell some friends to watch it absolutely all right peter we're going to talk soon okay okay awesome thanks thank you and my name is dana buckler and thank you so much for listening